make a couple of brief announcements. Um, in case any of you uh, want to drive down to the valley on the weekend, uh, like, you know, to go to Grace Community Church or something like that, anything else, uh, Sand Canyon is now open. If you take Placerita, I think most people know about this, to the very end, go under the 14, clear to the end, turn right. You can go right over the top of the hill down into the Hanson Dam area in the north part of the valley there and probably beat all the traffic. You, some of you may want to do that even if you're uh, going somewhere for the weekend other than that. Services at Grace will be as normal and usual. We had no damage except a few windows broke and some books fell down. So we're very thankful to the Lord for that. And we'll have our regular schedule of services. I just want to let you know that. Also, by Monday, John Stead assures me that all classes will be back to normal schedule, including Grace Baptist Church by Monday. So you'll go to your normal class on Monday. Just a, a reminder to pray for Scott Welch's father. His, uh, his kidnapping is becoming international news, and uh, he has been seen on television and the media. And, of course, they're asking uh, some kind of bizarre ransom, like $600 million or something, plus all Americans out of Colombia, which is basically run by the drug cartel. So we need to be remembering uh, to pray for Scott and his family, and particularly his father in this unbelievably difficult time that he's experiencing. Well, this morning I have a lot of things on my heart. I don't know if I can say all of them to you, but uh, I, I want to address what's going on. Uh, I, I'm uh, confident that you've thought through a lot of things and we've already said a lot of things, but I've tried to pull together what I think to be the important things that we need to learn from this. <clears throat> I was listening to some things on the radio, and perhaps you have too. Um, there are discussions and interviews about uh, what we should learn from this, and people are saying, well, we need to learn to better design our buildings and better design our roads, and we, we need to learn better emergency supply and response uh, tactics and so forth and so forth and so forth. Um, but I really think there are some much more important things than that to learn from this earthquake. And so I, I pose the question, what is this earthquake supposed to be teaching us? Because uh, God obviously has allowed this to happen. He has purpose for us. There are some real lessons that we need to learn. And I want to help you this morning because I want you to be able to help not only in your own heart to settle your mind about what's going on in terms of what you might be learning from this, but I want you to be able to encourage other people. So I want to address some things that you can hopefully use as a... Uh, as God gives you opportunity. First of all, I want to talk about the lessons for those who are Christians. What do those of us who are Christians draw out of this disaster, this calamity, this amazing event? Those of us, if I may be blunt, who are prepared to die. Because the only people in the world who prepare to die are Christians, right? Those of us who are prepared to die, um, this is... Um, this is not a serious event in terms of eternity. In fact, uh, it may be serious to the rest of the world, but for us it's little more than a novel adventure. The worst possible scenario would be that we would be ushered into the presence of the Lord, which would be the best possible experience. So for us who are prepared to die, there are some lessons that we can learn in the light of our eternal security, as it were. Now, let me just suggest them to you, and I won't beg the issue but I, I want to make some things clear, and I want to use the Scripture to do it because the Bible talks about the comfort of the Scripture. First lesson, 
This is something we already know and we're just being reminded of, and it is that God is sovereign. God's sovereign purposes are all coming together. This fits perfectly into his plan from before the foundation of the world. God ordained certain people to be saved. This very earthquake and the series of aftershocks are a part of his plan to bring that eternal election into reality. Already we know about people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ through this event, and there will be many, many more of them as God uses this to unfold his redemptive plan. He is accomplishing in the universe exactly what he has planned to accomplish, and everything fits into his divine purpose. Scripture makes it very clear that God is the supreme controller of everything. Nothing happens by chance, nothing happens by whim, nothing is just flying loose out of control. All of this fits perfectly into the plan of God who is supremely in control of everything and every person. Listen to what the Scripture says. In Exodus 8.22 it says, I am the Lord in the midst of the land. Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Now, I want to just remind you that nothing then escapes the understanding, the purview, or the plan of God. In Joshua chapter 2 and verse 11 we read, The Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. In Psalm 24 it says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 47, 2, For the Lord Most High is to be feared a great king over all the earth. Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine, the world and all it contains. Jeremiah wrote in chapter 10, verse 10, But the Lord is the true God, He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And then in 1 Timothy 6.15 and 16 we read, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is in control of heaven, God is in control of earth, and everything in heaven and everything in earth. Nothing is outside His sovereign, supreme, omnipotent control. And furthermore, He controls all things for the good of His own children. In Ezra, chapter 8, verse 22 says, The hand of our God is upon all who seek Him for good. Psalm 73, 1 says, Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. Lamentations 3.25 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. Matthew 7.11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. 
Psalm 91, I think more than any other psalm, sums this up. Just listen to this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. <laughs> he will cover you with his pinions or his supports. And under his wings, you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, of the destruction that lays waste at noon. Then this great promise. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not approach you. God works all things according to his sovereign plan and for the benefit of his beloved people. Now, a second lesson that we learn, and the Lord may punctuate more of these points that I'm making. I appreciate it. <laughs> the second lesson that we learn is this. What is eternal can never be destroyed. <laughs> I do appreciate this. I guess if Jeff, Jeff Hostetler can thank the Lord for a touchdown, I can thank the Lord for a, an illustration. <laughs> Second point, what is eternal can never be destroyed. What is eternal can never be destroyed. Look with me for a moment at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. What does it profit, verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What a tremendous statement. What does it matter if you accumulate everything temporal, everything material, everything worldly, and lose your eternal soul? Because there is nothing you can give in exchange to buy it back. People work all their life to gain what they will lose forever. On the other hand, Christians spend their lives gaining what we will never lose. This is precisely why Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust corrupts, thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What does he mean by that? He means that which is eternal. What is that? Winning people to Christ. As Luke 16 says, Purchasing for yourself friends for eternity. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Then listen to this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. What really matters is eternal, and what is eternal can never be destroyed. All around us, things are being destroyed, but not what is eternal. And what is eternal is salvation. Thirdly, dependence on, I should say, disaster produces dependence on God. Disaster produces dependence on God. Another very important thing that happens, and I imagine it's 
happening in your life is you're praying more than you were before Monday. Is that not true? Obviously it is. It has a way of throwing you into the path of true spiritual power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, just to give you a text to tie that to, the Apostle Paul says in verse 9 that God spoke to him, the Lord spoke to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. In other words, when you have come to the absolute end of your resources, there's only one place you can go, and that's to the Lord. And that then becomes the path to true spiritual power. So Paul says further in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's a, it's a great and basic reality of the Christian experience. When things are beyond your control, then you have to turn to God in total dependency on Him. And when you do that, you give God the opportunity to put His glory on display, right? And that's what He wants. Look at 2 Timothy for a moment in chapter 4. I want to put you in touch with as many scriptures as I can so you can go back later and, and read them. The Apostle Paul is writing from a prison. This is the last letter he ever wrote. He's about to get his head chopped off. The end of his life is very near. He's facing a certainly a humanly frightening reality. Verse 16 says of 2 Timothy 4, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, that's really unthinkable, isn't it? A man of the spiritual stature and of the uniqueness of the Apostle Paul who had supposedly won so many friends by leading so many to Christ is abandoned when it comes time for his defense. But his heart is expressed in the end of verse 16, may it not be counted against them. He doesn't want God to hold them responsible. He sounds like Stephen who's praying that the sin that the people who are killing him are committing uh, will not be held against them or like Christ who wants to forgive his crucifiers. Then in verse 17, he says this, But the Lord stood with me. I didn't have any human resource, but He was there and He strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that great? Disaster produced dependency. And that dependency made Paul even more powerful and made the gospel even more believable. Now, let me get practical. We're, we're having an opportunity right now to demonstrate the power of the Christian faith, are we not? The power of Christ in our lives. This is a time for us, at the end of our own strength, what can we do? We can't do anything about this. We can't stop it. We can't anticipate it. But what we can do is demonstrate in the midst of it our faith, can we not? To a world of people that are living in absolute dread. I've been uh, doing a lot of radio programs over the last three days all over America on talk shows, national talk shows. And they always ask me the question, what does this mean and how are we to understand this? Is God sending us a message? It's a very important time and the world is going to be turning toward people who have an invisible means of support people who trust in the Lord. And this is a time for our 
our campus, for our student body, for all of you, our faculty and administration, to stand firm and stand strong because we depend on the Lord and we experience His tremendous power. You know, a little bit of fear and a little bit of pain is good. William Faulkner once said, if I have to choose between pain and nothing, I'll choose pain. Because I can't know pleasure if I don't know pain. It makes simple joys immense pleasure. There can be a richness here as we depend on the Lord and wait to see His hand of relief and enjoy in a fresh way just the simple things of life like a still earth. A pain-free life doesn't make much of a person. A trouble-free life doesn't produce much. Graham Greene wrote a book called The Third Man. In the book, he, he says, In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, which was a very powerful family, the people had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But the period produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they have had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. Strength is born in the weakness of dependency. And when this is over, your trusting God through this will have increased your spiritual strength for the next trial of life. A much more gripping trial. The death of a loved one. Terminal disease. A massive disappointment. A shattered relationship. This is a time for the Lord to demonstrate His strength as we demonstrate His trust. Our trust. Number four, adversity enriches fellowship. Adversity enriches fellowship. When this thing hit at 4.30 on Monday, my uh, son-in-law, Mark Wynn, grabbed uh, my daughter Marcy and their two little babies, Katie and Olivia, and they went out in the street along with everybody else. And Mark's initial comment was, well, I now know what everybody in my entire neighborhood wears to bed. Um, breakfast the first morning Monday in the dining room you guys looked absolutely normal you looked the way you are without any additions subtractions or deletions and you notice it was a real leveler you know I mean the people who usually wear the really nice clothes and have a wonderful, lovely things to wear and, and are making a statement about the you know their sort of approach to life by how they style themselves, had the same tinfoil blanket that some of the schlocky guys wear, you know? I mean, we were leveled, weren't we? There was a commonality. There were no brand names. There was no fashion statement. There was nothing to isolate us. We were just a common bunch of scruffy-looking... Ragged, haggard people. I thought it was terrific myself. No distinctive clothes, no statements of individuality, all wrapped in tinfoil and bathrobes, blankets and weird shoes. Just shattered our rigid identity, didn't it? 
makes us all the same instead of all different. Isolates us from our privacy and throws us into the common mass. And all of a sudden we were concerned about each other and people were holding on to each other and talking and putting their arm around each other and praying together. We, we became one in a struggle like a team does or like an army does or like some group somewhere fighting for life when they've been stranded in the snow or a sinking ship. You forget about what separates you and you think only about what you need to do to help each other. Corporate intercession rises collectively. Everybody starts praying and caring and helping. People tripping over each other to, to see if they could be someone else's servant. Personal schedules were gone. Boy, wasn't that interesting? I had all kinds of appointments, Monday. I had major stuff. I mean, a whole day of appointments. I never even thought about any of them. It was wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. And I got a great excuse for doing nothing with all that stuff. Tuesday, I had a very important breakfast I didn't want to go to. I think that may be why this whole thing happened, because I didn't want to go to that thing anyway. All of my personal schedule, my personal desires, my personal strategy for how I was going to spend my week, all that stuff just went. And I was sort of overwhelmed with a non-discriminating love and desire to serve and meet needs. And it was wonderful. And isn't that what Jesus said? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And what greater way to demonstrate that than the way we were able to demonstrate it in that kind of a crisis? In writing to the Thessalonians, that's John 13, 34, and 35. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul was so convinced of the Thessalonians' spiritual character. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren. And then he says, I want you to even excel more at it. Philippians 2 talks about not looking each one on his own things, but each one on the things of others, considering others better than yourselves, having this mind in you which was also in Christ, who though it was, he was equal with God, thought it, not, thought it not something to hold on to, but divested himself of that, humbled himself, became a servant. We experienced that. Galatians 6, 2, uh, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 John 3:16, looking on someone in need and not shutting up your, your compassion to that person. I mean, this is one of the great teachers about fellowship and community and communion and love and sharing and serving. Number five, just quickly, suffering calamity in this life makes us long for the perfect world. I'm so glad I'm a premillennialist. I'm so glad there's going to be a perfect world, that Jesus is going to come and make a perfect world. No fear in that world, no danger in that world, no death in that world, no problems of any kind. And then there's going to come a world where He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. It makes heaven more wonderful. It makes heaven more inviting. My citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. I am an alien and a stranger. And so are all of us. And when these kinds of things happen in this world, I think it pushes us heavenward and makes us love what we should love. Paul writes in Philippians 1, I am hard-pressed, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Over in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you're looking at it in the truly spiritual sense, you're saying, well, more earthquakes, more often, more commonly, must mean we're getting closer to the end and that means we're getting nearer and nearer to the return of Christ. And isn't that our hope? Romans 8 says that the sufferings of this life or this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us in the future. This is exactly, I think, the kind of thing that can help us accomplish Colossians 3 where it says, set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. There's a sixth lesson. And I think it's an important one. Calamity can strengthen us to serve others, to help others. And I hinted at this earlier. Life is full of trouble. I mean, it's just full of trouble. This is really the least of it. None of us has found out about any life-threatening disease. None of us has died or heard some tragic story of the death of a loved one, with the exception of Scott Mitchell's father. And that's a far more grave situation than what we experience. Life is full of trouble. It's full of pain. It's full of calamity. It's full of death. That's the way it is. And the more experiences we have of this kind, the more we build a triumphant foundation of experience where we have gone through it, we've been victorious, and we can help others. Remember when uh, Luke 22, Jesus was talking to Peter, he said, Satan wants to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. And when he's done and you're converted, strengthen the brethren. Literally, Peter could be a strength to others because he would be tested by Satan himself. Psalm 51, after David's terrible sin, the Lord came to him and said, when you repent and when you're restored, you'll proclaim the truth. Hebrews chapter 12, I know you remember, it's all about discipline. Hebrews 12 talks about the discipline of the Lord. And one of the wonderful results of this discipline, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. If you'll be trained by the difficulties in life, it'll produce strength. And then verse 12 says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Having been put through the test and seen the hand of God and been triumphant, you become the strength for other people. This is producing a noble kind of Christianity. And then one last point on this side of the issue, and that is the worst possible situation can bring God's greatest glory. The worst possible situation can bring God's greatest glory. It allows him to put himself on display because he alone can deliver. And when he does, he gets all the credit. All the credit. Now, we could say a lot about that, but I'll, I'll leave that for you. In light of this, then, what is the proper response of a Christian? In light of those points, God is sovereign. What is eternal can't be destroyed. Disaster produces dependence on God. Adversity enriches fellowship. Suffering makes us long for the perfect kingdom. Calamity strengthens us to serve others. And the worst situation can bring God's greatest glory. In the light of all that, what is our proper response? 
Well, it should be to accept what happens joyfully, right? Listen to Psalm 16:8. I have set the Lord continually before me. In other words, I'm viewing this thing through Him. I'm putting on, as it were, God-colored glasses, and I'm looking at this whole event with a perspective that includes God. And because He is at my right hand, I love this, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. What a tremendous testimony. Everything around me is shaking, but I'm not. Because I put the Lord before me, and I'm looking at this thing through Him, through that perspective. Then Psalm 46. 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go in such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life would be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Life is very, very fragile. People are aware of that. They're learning that. Secondly, there are limits to self-protection. There are limits to self-protection. The best efforts at preservation of your life are weak. And they can't be trusted. No bank account. No networking. No gates, no bars, no alarms. No guns, no dogs, no insurance policies, no walls, no nothing can stop an earthquake. There are limits to self-protection. There are things that are beyond our control. By the way, none of those things I just listed can stop a cancer cell either or a heart attack or a deadly virus or an automobile accident or a plane crash. Psalm 33, 16 says, The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive. So our soul waits for the Lord. But if you don't have the Lord, then you have limited protection. You have the Lord, you have complete protection. And that which is eternal cannot perish. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, says, when they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them like the birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. We got it fixed. We got all the preparedness. We've done everything we can do. It's not going to help. Life is fragile. There are limits to self-protection. You can't prevent the inevitable. The third point, death is inevitable. No one will escape. And all the insurance policies and protection plans and locks and bolts can't stop cancer, heart disease, a deadly virus, a bullet, a car crash, whatever. Death is coming. If it wasn't in an apartment house in Northridge, it's coming somewhere, and it's coming sometime, and it's coming to everybody. 
Psalm 89, 48 says, What man shall live and not see death? Who's going to avoid death? Ecclesiastes 3.20 All come from the dust and all return to the dust. Ecclesiastes 8.8 says No man has authority over the day of death. 9.5 The living know they will die. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto men what? Once to die. The wages of sin is death. As in Adam, all die. Romans 5.12 Death is absolutely inevitable. Fourth, we live in a cursed earth. It's cursed because of sin. So, death is even more imminent. Everything around us feels the curse. Everything. We live in a fallen world a cursed world. I was curious about where earthquake faults come from. So I asked John Stead if he'd call somebody over in the science department and check on a thought that I had that the faults may be related to the flood. The flood was the first great judgment. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I just looking back at Scripture and realizing that at the flood, the fountains of the deep were opened up and if, if the earth was cracked and split at the flood to release the waters beneath, and then you remember the canopy broke up and the waters from above came down. All these faults could be related to what happened when God broke up the earth at the flood and released all the water. So I asked John to call. He called Dr. George Howe, who knows all about that stuff. And he gave an incomprehensible answer, which we've interpreted. No. What he said was, he believes that that is exactly what happened. That the continents were formed in the flood by continental rifting, pulling apart and separating, and that's what made the continents and the seas. And they are tied directly to the universal flood. It is at this time, he said, that tectonic plates, that's, that's the stratification, tectonic plates first appear and they are directly related to almost all earthquake activity. So what that means is, when the flood came, that was the judgment of God, right? And God hasn't drowned the world again, but we are still feeling the effects of His judgment through the results of that original flood. Dr. Howe said there are two types of faults, what's called the strike-flip fault, where you have uh, strata or plates of the earth that just pull apart. That was the Silmar quake of 1971. The second kind are what they call the thrust faults, where they don't pull apart, they overlap. And that's the Northridge quake of Monday. This is more traumatic and uh, you feel it more. It does more severe damage. The point that I'm making is that the very fact that earthquakes exist is, a, is an echo of judgment through human history. We live in a cursed world, and this world is going to have problems. There are going to be volcanoes that blow up. There are going to be tidal waves. There are going to be earthquakes. There are going to be avalanches. 
whatever. Because we live in a cursed world and that cursed, that curse will show up in many, many ways, obviously in personal sin and in disease and other things, but sometimes in great natural catastrophes and disasters. Listen to Job 9. Job understood this. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he couldn't answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars trembled. Job knew that when the earth shook, it was God. It was a reflection of his holy antipathy to sin and the curse. Not always directly, but certainly indirectly by that which God has already put into place in the flood. In Psalm 18, again, we, we read similar understanding on the part of God's people as they reflect on the disasters. I won't read all of the first 15 verses, but you should read it. Down in verse 7, the earth shook and quaked and the foundation of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. And the earthquakes that rumbled through this place in the last half an hour, what, how many, four maybe, are... <laughs> are a, a reflection, listen to this, of the anger of God. It isn't that he is saying, I'm mad. Mm. It's not that. It's that built into the very fabric of the universe is a holy antipathy toward iniquity and sin and fallenness that causes this kind of reaction. God has cursed the world. And so what we're feeling is the reality of a curse, which means the reality of sin. When God is angry, things start shaking. Sometimes it's indirect. Sometimes it's direct. You want to hear a direct one? Isaiah 13. Prophecy against Babylon that happened. Verse 6. Wait for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every, heart, every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will rise like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their face is aflame. The day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land of desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will dark when it rises, will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud. I will abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts and the day of his burning anger. That came to pass in Babylon. It even has implications for the eschatological judgment at the end of the age. Sodom and Gomorrah was the judgment of God on sin. When God is angry, the earth may shake. 
And he is angry, the Old Testament says, every day with the wicked. Every day. Number five. Lesson. Temporal disasters are previews of coming attractions. Temporal disasters are previews of coming attractions. This is just a taste of what is going to come. The prophet Joel, looking at the end of time, the end of the age, talked about the ultimate and final day of the Lord. And there are, there are many days of the Lord historically when God came in judgment. There is a final eschatological day of the Lord to come. But Joel looks at that final day of the Lord, the day when multitudes and multitudes are in the valley of decision, Joel 3.14, the day of the Lord is near, the sun and moon grew dark, the stars lost their brightness, the Lord roars from Zion, utters His voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for His people. Matthew chapter 24 talks about this kind of earthquake. Revelation chapter 6 says there's going to come an earthquake that's so frightening that people are going to cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them. Revelation chapter 11 talks about an earthquake and then the ultimate earthquake Revelation chapter 16, this is the big one. You hear people talk about the big one. You can show them where it is. Here it is. Here's the big one. Verse 17, Revelation 16, the seventh angel poured out his bowl on the earth, uh, in the air rather, and a loud voice came from the temple of the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. How great was it? Verse 20, Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Now that is an earthquake. And huge hailstones, a hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And then it understates with a final summary statement, the plague was extremely severe. I think so. All right, now, I want to close with this. The sixth lesson here, and you must get this. God uses these judgments to call people to repentance. God uses these judgments to call people to repentance. A fascinating, fascinating scripture is Luke 13. First few verses. Some people come to Jesus, okay? And they report to him about the Galileans. Galileans were Jews who lived in the Galilee, which is the rural area, the land of Israel. <laughs> and they reported to him about some Galileans. You know what happened to them? Pilate killed them. And it says, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is an atrocity, folks. This is an atrocity. This would be classified today as a mass murder. Here's a bunch of Jews who live in Galilee. They've come all the way to Jerusalem. And they go into the temple. And they're offering sacrifices. They're worshiping God. Pilate's guys come in, <clears throat> kill them all. And their blood pours out and mingles with the blood of the sacrifices. It's a very graphic description. Now, the 
the cruelty of Pilate toward the Jews is legendary. We don't want to belabor that. But the question they're asking is implied. Why did that happen? Why does that happen? He answered and said to them, Do you suppose, verse 2, that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Because that's what the Jews thought. Remember when the man was born blind and the, Jews, the Jewish leader said, Who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, they figured if you, got a, if you had a calamity like that, you must have been a very wicked sinner. And so their question was, oh, Wait a minute, now these guys were worshiping. They were just in there worshiping. Why did God let that happen? Were, were they worse sinners than everybody else and that's why it happened to them? And Jesus answered, You know what it was? You better repent or it could happen to you. What? What kind of an answer is that? His answer is this. Everybody deserves that. Everybody. The question isn't why did they die. The question is why are you alive? Because the wages of sin is what? Is death. The question isn't why did those Galileans die? Were they the worst sinners? No. They were sinners just like everybody else. The question is why are you alive? you don't repent, you're going to die too in your sin. That was an atrocity. So when you see an atrocity in a mass murder and all these people get killed in these mass murders or these terrible things that people do, do, do we conclude that the victims were, the, were worse sinners than the folks who didn't die? No. What we should conclude is that those people who did die deserve death, but so do we. And if we don't repent, We'll die in our sins and perish forever, too. Well, then they went to a second issue. They went from an atrocity to an accident like we've experienced. And probably an earthquake. Are you ready for this? What about those guys, 18 of them, on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them all? Now, down in the southeast corner of the Jerusalem Wall is a pool of Siloam. Just inside the wall, they built this tower. They have a lot of earthquakes in the land of Israel. And uh, one day, 18 guys are walking down the road there. Ground shook. Tower fell over, killed all 18 of them. Now, these people aren't even Galileans. They live in Jerusalem. They're even more holy. It says, they live in Jerusalem. Do you think they all died because they're worse than somebody else? No. Jesus said, unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. God is gracious, God is merciful, God is patient. But He punctuates human life constantly with illustrations of what everybody deserves, right? And eventually is going to receive. Why does He do it? To warn people. Whether it's an atrocity or an accident. Thirty-some people have died right here. Do you know more than three times that many people have died in the cold in the east? A hundred people have died? You say, well, why did those people die? What kind of a God lets those people die? What? The question is not why they died. The question is why anybody lives. And the answer is because, because God is merciful and He's patient, but He's illustrating what's coming. And then that brings me to the last point. God is using calamity to call people to repentance. And lastly, time is limited 
to heed the warning. Time is limited to heed the warning. Look at verse 6 of Luke 13. And Jesus began this parable. A certain man had a fig tree. He planted in his vineyard. He came looking for the fruit. Didn't find any. He said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on the fig tree and I didn't find any. Cut it down. Now stop there. They would give a fig tree three years. That's a, that's a standard deal. If it didn't bear fruit in three years, cut it down and put another one in. Why does it even use up the ground? This is what the guy said. Let it alone, sir. For, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, what? Cut it down. What's that saying? Time is limited. God is patient. God is gracious. The Lord is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But His Spirit will not always strive with man. And one of the most frightening things Jesus ever said in Luke 12:49 is this, I have come to cast fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. What a statement. Sinners have a temporary reprieve. It's time to repent. What a profound teacher is an earthquake, right? Father, we thank You for our time this morning to consider these matters. And Lord, we commit ourselves into Your care. We have no fear. For we know You are greater than Your creation. We know that a thousand may fall at our right hand and ten thousand at our side and it will not come nigh us. Nothing, nothing can touch us apart from Your perfect will and nothing can touch that which is eternal. Use us, Lord. Teach us the lessons that Christians need to learn. And Lord, teach the unbelieving, the unsaved, the lost sinners the lessons they need to learn. And may this tremendous event, this physical event, set in motion an even greater spiritual event in the lives of millions of people. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.